When one ponders the great judges of yore, certain names stand out above the rest. Names like Judge Harry T. Stone, Judge Judas Scheindlin, Judges Wapner, Mathis, and Joe Brown, Judge Reinhold, Judge Dredd, and Mike Judge all bear remembering. But towering over these colossal judicial minds stands one man, one legend so interwoven into the fabric of modern-day jurisprudence, you'd be remiss not to pay him homage. And that man's name was Roy Dam Bean. That's right, Judge Roy Bean, to be exact. The law west of the Pecos, known for serving up both justice as well as tasty beverages, from his courtroom slash saloon known as the Jersey Lily, located in a little far of a town in West Texas known as Langtree. All rise, court is in session on this newest overruled edition of Bloody Beaver Podcast. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to Bloody Beaver Podcast. My name's Josh, and I'm the host of this here thing. Now that we've got that formality out of the way, let's just get right down to it. Fantley Roy Bean Jr. was born in Kentucky in 1825 to parents Fantley Sr. and Anna Gore. And that's normally how I like to start off most of these stories, with just the bare-bone basics. When and where the subject was born, maybe tossing the name of the parents while we're at it. I like a good origin story to start things off. Unfortunately, almost everything I just said about Roy Bean is debatable. Before we go any further on Judge Bean, let me just say, this guy was one of the hardest I've encountered so far when it comes to separating fact from fiction. First off, let's address the name issue, his first name, Fantley. That's spelled P-H-A-N-T-L-Y. And that might not have even been his name, as there is some evidence it was actually Fauntleroy, as in Little Lord Fauntleroy. No wonder he just went by Roy. You know, a lot's changed in Texas since the days of Judge Bean, but I believe the one constant is that you might just get your ass kicked if you go around answering to Fauntleroy. Bean was born on a farm, and he was born in Kentucky, but we don't know when. The best guess is sometime around the early 1830s. While doing research on this episode, I actually spent way more time than I should have trying to narrow down the exact year he was born. I'll go into particulars about his birth year later and why I think it's important, but for now, for the sake of the story, we're going to go with the early 1830s. Bean's formative years, much like his date of birth, are mired in mystery. So just keep that in mind as we go forward and make some attempt to separate the man from the myth. Roy was the youngest of five children, three boys and two girls, and most sources i found say that the Bean family was an extremely poor family. But I did find one source, an ancient post on genealogy.com of all places, they claimed, anecdotally, that the Beans were pretty well off, having a lot of slaves and a lot of land. So I'm not sure which one of these narratives is accurate, and it doesn't really matter much, as Bean would leave home while still a very young man. Once again, we don't know exactly when this was, but nearly every version of Roy Bean's life involves him leaving home while still a teenager, when, according to him at least, he hopped on a flat boat that was bound for New Orleans. And if you're not familiar with these flat boats, they're just what they sound like. Large, rectangular-shaped, flat-bottom boats of various sizes, usually big enough to carry a whole bunch of goods as well as people. They played a big role when it came to conducting business and moving goods in the early 19th century, especially before the advent of steamboats. Basically, you just load the boat full of various merchandise, float down the mighty Mississippi to New Orleans, sell your goods along with the boat, which was dismantled and sold as lumber, and then, after satiating your appetites of the flesh with coffee-skinned Creole women and sugarcane rum, You'd walk back home via a major road at the time known as the Natchez Trace, hopefully with some coins jingle-jangling in your pockets. At the time of Roy's arrival, which would have been sometime in the 1840s, New Orleans was about as bustling as a city could be. Matter of fact, in 1840, the Big Easy was the third most populated city in the United States, 
and the number one wealthiest city. And a lot of that wealth was due to it being the home of the country's largest slave market at the time. A whole bunch of money was made off the selling of other human beings. And the slave trade spawned all sorts of other industries necessary to support it. Transportation, housing, clothing, food, stuff like that. In Roy's heyday, New Orleans was a melting pot of French, African, German, American, Irish, and Italian migrants. All trying to make a buck. I imagine for a Kentucky farm boy like Roy, it would have been overwhelming. All of a sudden, finding yourself in such a rich city, surrounded by more people and diversity than you ever imagined possible, hearing all those different accents and foreign languages. Plenty of opportunity there for a young man, a young white man at least, with a little ambition and a little gumption to make a fortune. Also a lot of opportunity for a young man to get himself in a whole bunch of trouble, which is exactly what Roy Bean did. What type of trouble did he get into? Who knows? According to one source and one source only, he got into a big brawl in the French Quarter and had to haul ass out of town to avoid any repercussions. Another very unreliable source I found claimed that he killed a man on a steamboat. Years later, Roy would tell his friends that during this time of his life, he was engaged in driving slaves for another party from Kentucky to New Orleans. But as far as I can tell, he made no mention of any trouble. Whether or not any of this is true, we may never know. Like I said, a lot of murky water surrounding Roy's early life. His next stop would be Mexico, via the Santa Fe Trail. He hooked up with his older brother Sam and the pair headed on down south and opened up a trading post of sorts in the state of Chihuahua. But not for long, though. This would have been about the year of our Lord 1848. And much like New Orleans, there was plenty of trouble to be had for a young gringo in old Mexico. The story goes that Roy got into it with a local who was spouting off about killing a white man. So Roy went ahead and took preemptive measures and killed the Mexican before the man had a chance to make good on his threat. Needless to say, after this, they were no longer welcome in Chihuahua. So Roy and his brother Sam pushed further west into Mexico, to the state of Sonora. And eventually, by 1849, Roy found himself in San Diego, where his eldest brother Joshua was living. Joshua Bean, just like brother Sam, had served in the army. After his hitch was over, he migrated to California, eventually settling in San Diego, where he became a trader and a saloon owner. He even became the first mayor of San Diego. And he, just like Roy, was quite the character. While he was mayor, he allegedly and illegally sold City Hall to himself. By 1851, Joshua had moved on to Los Angeles where he opened up another saloon and ended up getting himself killed in the process over a damn woman. Imagine that. Getting in fights over women would become a common occurrence for the Bean clan. You can't tell by looking at his pictures, but evidently Roy Bean was quite the ladies' man in his younger days. And most of the trouble he got himself into in San Diego seemed to be centered around women. The result of one such incident found Roy challenged to a duel by a hot-headed Scotsman named John Collins. And not just your normal stand-in-the-street duel. Oh no, this one would be done on horseback. A Wild West jousting match with pistols instead of lances. Luckily for both men, nobody lost their life in the duel. But Collins did receive a bullet to his arm and Bean received several months in jail. During which time he received many visits and many gifts from local senoritas who seemed to adore him. No telling how long he would have spent in jail, but he wasn't going to just sit around and find out. Roy had one of his lady loves smuggle in some knives, hidden in tamales. Knives that he then used to dig through the walls of his cell, thus escaping. No word on whether or not he ate the tamales first. Story goes that he fled to San Gabriel, California, now part of present-day Los Angeles, and got work bartending for his brother Joshua at the headquarters saloon. And unfortunately, this was right around the time that Joshua would be murdered. And even though Roy inherited his brother's saloon, he himself wouldn't be in California that much longer. Just could not keep himself out of trouble when it came to women. In about 1854, a young lady he was courting was supposedly kidnapped and forced to marry a Mexican military officer. Bean wasn't having none of that noise, so he challenged the man to a duel. The officer accepted, and Bean killed the man dead. 
Turns out the dead man had friends, angry friends, six of whom caught up with Bean, placed him on a horse, slipped a noose around his neck, and left him there to hang at the horse's convenience. There's a scene in that movie, The Homesman, where a main character is left to die in a similar fashion. And I'm wondering now how often this actually happened back in those days, or if it ever happened. You know, I guess the idea was if nobody swats the horse and makes it bolt, then nobody can be held morally responsible for the death. Just leaving a man on horseback with a noose around his neck, you know, somewhat alleviates guilt and places the blame on the horse. In theory, I guess. For Roy Bean, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. When the dead officer's friends rode off, Roy's girlfriend emerged from hiding and cut Bean down. Not before the horse bolted, though. Make no mistake about it, Roy Bean was extremely lucky. He got hanged, but either the rope just wasn't long enough or it just had too much stretch in it because the fall didn't break his neck. But had his lady friend not acted when she did, Bean would have likely slowly suffocated to death. This incident left a permanent rope burn around Roy's neck, which, so the story goes, is why he took to wearing the long beard you see in all of his pictures. Also left him with a stiff neck for the rest of his life. And I don't know about you, but if I had to pick one part of my body to remain stiff for the rest of my life, it wouldn't be my neck. It'd be my penis. And just an interesting antidote about Roy growing the beard to hide his scars. Sort of a modern day tie-in. I'm sure many of you listening are familiar with Hank Williams Jr., the country singer responsible for songs like Family Tradition, Whiskey Bent and Hellbound, A Country Boy Can't Survive, or my favorite, The Blues Man. What you may not know is that Hank Jr. had a near-fatal accident in 1975 while climbing a peak in Montana. The snow gave out underneath him and he fell over 400 feet, fracturing his skull in multiple places. Almost killed him. Had to undergo numerous surgeries over the next couple of years. The full beard and sunglasses that he's now famous for sporting are worn to cover up the scars he received from this accident. Kind of like how Roy wore that beard. At least that's the way I heard it. Back to Roy Bean. After this little failed lynching incident, Roy decided that California was hazardous to his health and moseyed on over to New Mexico, joining his brother Sam near Silver City. Now, I don't know how much of what I just recounted of Roy Bean's early life is actually true, or how much of it is stuff that he just made up in his latter years. I don't know that he actually ever visited New Orleans. I'm not sure if he really killed a man in Mexico, and I'm not positive that he got hung in California. I know he was in California living with Joshua in 1850, because I did find him on a census record. I think. It's real hard to make out the first name, but it's a 19-year-old Bean whose first name seems to be some sort of a bastardation of Fauntleroy. But once Bean left California, things start to get a little less murky. That's where we start having more evidence and more of a paper trail proving certain events. So just once again, keep in mind, there's a lot of details I'm leaving out here for the sake of the podcast when it comes to the many inconsistencies of his early life. I want to keep the story going, and I don't want to bore everybody with wasting too much time on certain details. Depending on what year he was born, some of the events I just described probably would not have been possible. I will touch on this later, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Moving forward. Okay, so now we're in New Mexico, where Roy's brother Sam had just become sheriff of Donna Anna County. And together, the brothers would eventually open up a store and a saloon, which they guarded with a cannon. Yes, a cannon. I think it was mostly for show, but legend states that it was used at least once to thwart an Apache raid on the town. By the way, Silver City was a mining town, and where there's a mine, there's money. And where there's money, there's always someone like Roy Bean ready to help relieve you of said finances. And what better way to do so than by operating a saloon? I can only imagine the business was a booming. Nothing lasts forever, though. This was in the early 1860s, and the country was quickly becoming divided. And even New Mexico was not immune from the effects of the Civil War. Roy, being a southern man and one of Kentucky's very own, ended up siding with the Confederacy. 
And at least one source I found stated that he helped form a guerrilla group that spent more time stealing from local farmers and ranchers than actually contributing to the Southern cause. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, but at this point, I wouldn't put it past him. What I do know is that the Confederate Army invaded New Mexico in 1862, and after a mostly Union victory at the Battle of Glorieta Pass, the rebels were forced to retreat back to Texas, and Roy Bean followed them, after stealing whatever he could fit in his saddlebags from the safe his brother Sam kept in the saloon. And no idea what his motive was here. You know, why did he decide to leave New Mexico and rob his brother in the process? But he'd done it. Back during the Civil War, you had something called blockade runners there on the Gulf Coast. A lot of people don't know it, but England backed the Confederacy during the war, at least financially, which caused the Union to form a blockade that, well, blocked any British supplies coming and going for some 3,500 miles of coastline. These blockade runners, usually British ships, would slip through undetected with loads of much-needed guns and other supplies in exchange for southern cotton that the British textile industry was desperately in need of. Roy Bean's job during all this was to haul cotton from San Antonio all the way down to Matamortis and then return with wagons full of British supplies, which he did. And then, after the war ended, he would call San Antonio home for the better part of the next two decades. We all remember Roy Bean as the cantankerous bearded old man, you know, the law west of the Pecos, and we'll get to that soon enough, but that particular chapter of his life didn't come to fruition until he was a little bit older. A pretty big chunk of his life was spent there in San Antonio. In October of 1866, Roy decided to settle down and marry a 15-year-old girl named Virginia Chavez. Because, oh, I don't know, maybe because Chris Hansen from To Catch a Predator wasn't around to ask him to have a seat. And I say 15, but Virginia's age at the time of the marriage, just like Roy Bean's age, is up for dispute. The 1870 census lists Virginia as being born in 1851. That would have made her 15 at the time of the wedding. Her official death certificate lists her birth year as 1844, which would have made her 22 years old at the time of the wedding. According to genealogy website WikiTree, she was born in 1848, which would have made her 18 at the time of the wedding. Gosh dang, you know, why can't we get some solid ages for these people? Whichever way you want to look at it, Roy Bean did marry himself a much younger woman. I'm guessing she was probably still a teenager at the time of the wedding, because literally every source I could find said as much. And you know, I was thinking about this the other day when I was reading about Kit Carson, who, of course, married his wife, Yosefa, when she was just 15 years old. And they had a very happy marriage. But you gotta wonder, why did so many guys in their 30s get married to teenagers back in the day? My theory, and this is just a theory, is that by the time a woman hit like the age of 19 or so, if she wasn't already married, she was kind of considered to be like a spinster. Now, I'm not saying I agree with this way of thinking, but probably that was the thought process at the time. Couple that with the fact that, more than likely, if a guy like Kit Carson or Roy Bean wanted a single lady who wasn't already a widow with children, they probably had to go a little on the young side. Unlike Kit Carson, and despite the fact that Roy and Virginia would have at least four children together, there are no indications that this union was a happy one. Matter of fact, all evidence points in the opposite direction. Within just a year of swapping vows, Roy was arrested for beating young Virginia. He allegedly came home one night in a bad mood, pulled a stick out of the fireplace, and placed the glowing red wood against her backside. During the trial, Bean's lawyer demanded proof, asking that the defendant, Virginia, show her scar to the jury. This was 1867. Reputable ladies wouldn't show their ankles in public in those days, much less their damn backsides. Virginia obviously refused to do so, and the judge dismissed the case. Bean, once again allegedly, said of the incident, quote, If that jury had seen the scar, they'd have put me in jail for life. Roy and his beloved moved to a poor part of San Antonio called Beanville, which I can only assume was named after him. The area is actually still called Beanville by some people. It's just south of the Lone Star District, kind of in between Burbank High School and Conception Park. 
From what I can tell from Google Street View, it's looking like it's still not the most prosperous part of town. So if you're in San Antonio and you want to check out Roy Bean's old stomping grounds, you might want to go during the daytime. Just saying. Old San Antonio newspapers going back over 100 years ago describe Bean as both a Southside legend and a scoundrel. And from what I can tell, both of these descriptors are pretty accurate. Judge Roy Bean is definitely a legend, especially here in Texas. And judging from his various money-making schemes he undertook there in San Antonio, he was most certainly a scoundrel of the First Order as well. He was a part-time teamster and at one point started a business hauling and selling firewood. Not his firewood, mind you. Roy preferred cutting down trees that didn't belong to him. Cheaper that way. He tried working as a butcher, but apparently butchering other people's stray cattle without buying them is frowned upon. He even went into the dairy business, but he got caught watering down the milk with creek water. One story that should probably be taken with a grain of salt goes that one of Bean's milk customers complained about finding a minnow in his milk, to which Bean replied, That's the last time I let that cow drink out of the creek before I milk her. Everything this man did had some sort of an angle to it. Some dash of skullduggery. Like he was always trying to get something over on someone. And oddly enough, to balance it all out, he was said to be pretty charitable to the poor citizens of Beanville. Many of those stray cattle that he butchered fed families in need. A practice that he would continue as the law west of the Pecos, but we'll get to that soon enough. On the 1880 census, Roy Bean is listed as a widower, but the fact was he was actually just divorced. Virginia was still alive, she had just done left his ass by that point. And he himself was starting to wear out his welcome in the Alamo City. One version of the events leading up to Roy's departure of San Antonio, written by an unknown author and found in the San Antonio Conservation Society, reads, quote, After his 17 years residence here and these misdemeanors and a vast accumulation of debts, the city fathers ran him out of town, as they expressed it, for the good of the town. So in 1882, Roy Bean bid San Antonio adieu and lit out for greener pastures. And by greener pastures, I mean the desolate dry land of West Texas west of the Pecos River and just north of the Rio Grande. There was a railroad being built, and building a railroad has a way of making a man thirsty. Roy Bean decided to turn that thirst into a profit by opening up a tent saloon in a railroader camp known as Vinegaroon, named after a type of scorpion. A lot of you have seen the TV show Hell on Wheels. I know this because I get emails all the time saying that I should watch it, but I'm not gonna, because you're not the boss of me. This camp, Vinegaroon, is sort of a Hell on Wheels type situation. You know how back in the Old West you had mining towns like Deadwood and Tombstone or Silver City, where the usual suspects would always find themselves, gamblers, gunfighters, morally ambiguous lawmen. And then you had cow towns, which made a whole bunch of money off of thirsty cowboys fresh off the trail. Well, Vinegaroon was the same way. Only instead of miners or cattlemen, they catered mostly to railroad workers. And as you can imagine, a railroad camp set up in 1882 West Texas wasn't exactly a bastion for law and order. Or cleanliness. Or the appreciation for the finer things of life like poetry or classical literature or tender feelings. Whores, gambling, and whiskey? You bet. Tranquil peacefulness and a mutual respect of your fellow man? Eh, not so much. The lawlessness got so out of hand that it began to impede the progress of the railroad. So the railroad men called in the Texas Rangers. And even they were appalled at how bad things had gotten. There is the worst lot of roughs, gamblers, robbers, and pickpockets collected here I ever saw, wrote one ranger captain. Keep in mind, there was only so much the rangers could do. And when they did make an arrest, they'd have to haul the accused over 120 miles away to Fort Stockton to stand trial. Ain't nobody got time for that. As it so often goes in these boom towns, there's a period of anarchy where the law of the land is whatever law you as an individual are able to enforce, with your fist or with your guns. And often as not, into this vacuum of lawlessness, 
and here's an equally lawless man who's given a badge and the authority to keep the peace. Listen, Wyatt Earp weren't no angel. Neither was Bat Masterson or Pat Garrett or Bill Hickok. All of these were flawed men who broke the law more than once their own selves. So it shouldn't necessarily come as a surprise that when the Texas Rangers visited West Texas, they chose a scoundrel like Roy Bean to take up the cause of keeping the peace. And although they didn't go so far as to pin a badge on him, they did have him appointed as the Pecos County Justice of the Peace. This not only freed them up from having to haul prisoners all the way to Fort Stockton, but the fact that the judge also operated out of a saloon gave the Rangers a convenient place to relax and enjoy a nice refreshing beverage. This all got me to wondering just what exactly it is that a Justice of the Peace does. Literally all I know about them is that that's where you go to get married when you're broke or you just don't want a big fancy church wedding. According to the law offices of Wikipedia, Wikipedia, and Wikipedia, a Justice of the Peace is a judge of a court with limited jurisdiction who typically preside over misdemeanor cases, traffic violations, and other petty criminal infractions. They may also have authority over cases involving small debts, landlord and tenant disputes, and or other small claim court proceedings. So yeah, basically Roy Bean was Judge Judy before being Judge Judy was cool. And it wasn't as smooth of a transition as you would imagine. Or I guess from Roy Bean's previous behavior, maybe it was exactly as you would imagine. Within four months of this new position, a newspaper article was written up saying that the newly appointed Justice of the Peace Bean was usually so drunk and quarrelsome that many people had shunned his saloon altogether. The article does go on to offer up some hope though, saying, quote, Aside from his bibulous peculiarities, old Roy is generous, brave, courteous, and a keen lover of fun. He holds court anywhere and carries a pocket full of blank warrants, one of which he will fill out and sign at a moment's notice. Then, just to step all over that little tiny sliver of hope, the newspaper man then goes on to describe a recent incident where a drunk and disorderly Judge Bean forced a Texas Ranger to put his degenerate ass in chains. It was the day before the judge was due to hold court, and he was really tying one on, waving his pistol around and spouting off stuff like, I'm the law around here, and if anybody don't like it, they best hide out because I've got my war paint on. And when old Roy gets his war paint on, he's hell. A ranger tried to simmer the judge down, but to no avail. He eventually disarmed the old reprobate and had him put in chains until he sobered up and promised to stay sober. A promise that didn't last too long. Now, you may be asking yourself, given all this acting out, exactly how the hell was Roy being qualified to become justice of the peace? To which I'll ask you, why so many questions? Mind your business. No, uh, the short answer is, he probably wasn't qualified. Matter of fact, one of the first things he did once he got the appointment was shoot up the saloon of one of his competitors, a Jewish man. No idea if the guy being Jewish had anything to do with it, or if Bean just didn't like the competition or what. But that's just not exactly the way a learned man of the law comports himself. In Roy's defense, though, he himself did have more experience than most when it came to being in a courtroom, at least as a defendant. Remember, he had to defend himself against more than one felony charge while living in San Antonio. Also, he just so happened to be in possession of a fancy 1879 revised statutes of Texas law book. And what other qualifications you need, people? And he did have some standing when it came to the railroad officials who were building the dang railroad. It was their influence on the county commissioners, as well as the Texas Rangers, that helped Bean get appointed. It's important to note, however, that he would be elected by the people to five more terms as JP. So he couldn't have done all that bad of a job. And it is in this capacity as Justice of the Peace that he earned the moniker Law West of the Pecos. Since Vinegar Room catered to railroad workers, once they finished that particular part of the line, they moved on, thus rendering the tent city obsolete. Not having any thirsty miners around means a dip in profit, 
and Roy Bean certainly wasn't going to tolerate that, so he relocated as well, moving his operations closer to Dead Man's Canyon, where two rail lines came together in a grading camp. This place was originally called Eagle's Nest, but then renamed Langtree. And contrary to popular belief, the town of Langtree, Texas was not named after the British stage actress Lily Langtree. More on her to come, but Langtree was, in fact, named after railroad engineer George Langtree, who oversaw the Chinese slaves, or, uh, I mean, the Chinese immigrant work crews. Langtree was basically a place where the trains would stop and take on wood and water. This process took about an hour, and Roy Bean figured that the passengers might want to take that opportunity to get out and stretch their legs and have a cold beer or a shot of whiskey to wet their parched lips. And he figured correctly. He raised his saloon right there on the north side of the tracks, leasing the land from the railroad and christening the joint as the Jersey Lily, which, unlike the town, was named in honor of Miss Lily Langtree, who was born on the Isle of Jersey. Roy Bean's courtroom as Justice of the Peace consisted of an opulent two-story courthouse, a state-of-the-art county jail that could house several dozen inmates, a judge's quarters with floor-to-ceiling mahogany bookshelves lined with volumes of both law and philosophy books, as well as tomes documenting the rise and fall of great civilizations. And his chambers were said to smell faintly of leather, slight hints of vanilla, and wisdom. And of course, none of that is true. Judge Roy Bean held court in his saloon, Jersey Lily, with a whiskey barrel for a bench and the butt of his revolver for a gavel. And he didn't have no volumes of law books to peruse in his free time. He had that one dusty-ass old law book I already mentioned, and don't even think about bringing a more up-to-date version into his establishment. There weren't no jail houses in Langtree either. If, for whatever reason, you violated the law of Judge Roy Bean and he deemed it necessary that you be locked up, you usually just ended up getting chained to a tree. Oftentimes, though, if somebody couldn't afford to pay their fines, the judge would make them work it off doing free labor around town. That, or they could sometimes, submit to several rounds of titty twister. An archaic form of torture, the Judge Roy, who was described as having very strong fingers, met it out personally by taking the guilty party's nipple between his thumb and his forefinger and just slowly twisting it, applying more and more pressure until the accused was deemed rehabilitated. And I hope you know I just made that up. No evidence that I found has even hinted at Judge Roy Bean doling out titty twisters. Although you gotta admit, it would have been pretty cool. Everything else I said is true though. No jail, the prisoners were just chained to trees or made to work off their fines. And there was no courthouse. All official judicial business did take place in the Jersey Lily Saloon. Now, before we go any further, let's talk about Lily Langtree, Roy Bean's crush and in whose honor he named the Jersey Lily. Lily, born Emily Charlotte Breton on the British Isle of Jersey in 1853, was a stage actress who traveled extensively all over Europe and the United States. She was considered exceptionally beautiful, and there are a ton of pics of her online if you're curious. In some of the pictures, I'm like, yeah, I can see it. But in others, eh, she's got sort of a masculine-looking thing going on in the face. Listen, I got no leg to stand on here when it comes to looks. Trust me. Everybody's into different features when it comes to what we find attractive, and that's the beauty of life. God only knows I'm not the most handsome specimen myself. But my mom says I'm cute, and Roy Bean thought Lily was cute. Matter of fact, he considered her to be a pretty critter. His words, not mine. He was actually quoted as describing her as, and I'm not making this up, a pretty critter. Now, I know I've got a lot of listeners in Texas, but for those of you in lands far, far away that maybe aren't fluent in Texanese, in some circles, calling a lady a critter is a term of endearment. And in some circles, a high compliment would be to refer to a woman's derriere by saying, would you look at the shitter on that critter? And that's country for, oh my, that lady has a rather attractive bottom. You know, talking about that ass. And Roy was not the only one that had hots for Miss Langtree. 
Her looks, coupled with her natural charm, garnered her quite a bit of attention from men. Noblemen, to be precise. And unfortunately for Roy, these noblemen were just her type. Although she was married to a Mr. Edward Langtree, that didn't stop Lily from playing the field. Matter of fact, she was kind of known to have affairs while having affairs. Throughout the years, she enjoyed the company of such notable nobles as the Prince of Wales, Edward VII, the Earl of Shrewsbury, Prince Louis of Battenberg, British Prime Minister William Ewart Gladstone, wealthy New Yorker Frederick Gebert, Prince Louis Esterhazy, and Hugo Gerald de Bath. And I know what you're thinking. Those sure are a lot of fancy names I just listed, and it sure does sound like I made them up. I did not. Those are real names of real-life guys that Miss Langtree was involved with romantically. And I don't get it, you know. What did those guys have that Roy didn't? Other than money and lots of land and good looks. If I could have a conversation with Lily, I'd ask her what she saw in these soft-handed gentlemen. Surely they couldn't hold a candle to the pure manliness that Judge Roy Bean exuded. Come on, Lily. Why go out for cheeseburgers when you got a grade-A American ribeye waiting for you west of the Pecos? <laughs> Women, man. I mentioned earlier the widely held belief that the town of Langtree was named after Lily Langtree. And I think this is largely due to Judge Bean himself making that claim in a letter that he wrote to Miss Langtree. That's right, they were pen pals. Or for you youngsters out there, the old judge slid all up in Lily's DMs. He told his crush they named the town in her honor, which of course was bullshit. But he certainly wasn't the first guy to stretch the truth when trying to impress a woman. Miss Langtree actually wrote back to Roy, offering to donate an ornamental drinking fountain to the town out of appreciation. To which Roy replied that while the town's citizens would drink just about anything, water wasn't one of them. So instead of a fountain, Lily sent Roy a brace of silver-plated Colt revolvers, which quickly became some of his most prized possessions. He used one of the peacemakers as a gavel to bring the court to order, and he kept the other close by just in case he needed to maintain said order. To say that the judge held an unconventional court would be making a vast understatement. He didn't allow hung juries or appeals. His word was final and anything else was a waste of time. The jurors were chosen by him, and they usually consisted of his saloon's best customers, meaning them that could afford to buy whiskey, which they were required to do per Judge Roy's edicts during every court recess. Judge Bean was also known for uncommon or out-of-the-ordinary rulings. One famous example is that of Patty O'Rourke who, due to his Irish heritage, was a damn drunk. One day, Paddy got a little bit too much Jameson in him and killed a local Chinese rail worker. O'Rourke got arrested, as he should have. You can't just go around killing Asians just because you feel like it, not even in Texas. I don't care how good they are at math, you just can't do it. During the trial, which of course was held in the Jersey Lily and officiated by Judge Bean, a mob of at least 200 angry Irishmen showed up and demanded that their kinsmen be freed. What's more, they said that if he wasn't, they'd lynch Roy Bean. Upon hearing this, the judge consulted his trusty revised 1879 edition of Texas Statutes and concluded that homicide is defined as the killing of a human being. However, he said, he could find no laws against the killing of a Chinaman. The case was dismissed and the mick went free. And Judge Bean lived to rule another day. Just kidding, by the way, about uh, Patty O'Rourke being a drunk due to his Irish roots. I don't know if he was a drunk or not. I just like making jokes revolving around stereotypes, and for now at least, it's still safe to make fun of the Irish. When I imagine the angry mob of 200 Irishmen, I imagine them all to be like red-faced and wearing little green hats with buckles on them, just doing their little angry leprechaun dances. And for those of you who rightfully are aghast at the idea of Judge Bean letting a killer off the hook just because the victim was Chinese, I'm thinking Roy was probably looking out for himself here. He had already had a noose placed around his neck once and probably didn't think he'd survive a second lynching. 
I think Bean was probably a tough old man, but just in the sense that he was a survivor. He wasn't a heroic man. There would be no standoff in the streets, guns drawn, staring down an angry mob in the name of justice when it comes to Judge Roy Bean. But he was a survivor. And sure, he might have been crooked, but it wasn't all bad. Even though Roy had left his ex-wife in San Antonio, he didn't use that opportunity to be a deadbeat dad. He might not have been the greatest father figure in the world, but he did love his children. Matter of fact, after a while, they came and lived with him at the saloon. Legend has it that his youngest son, Sam, slept on the pool table. Let's go ahead and take a look at other examples of Roy's controversial court rulings. There's that one story of a train passenger who made a quick stop in the Jersey Lily one day, tossing the judge a $20 gold piece in exchange for a beer, obviously expecting to get some change back. When Bean refused to give the customer his change, the man protested, causing Roy to fine the man $19.95 for contempt of court, saying that he doubled the fine if the man said another word. Now, was court actually in session when the man demanded his change? No. But then again, court was in session whensoever Judge Bean deemed it so. I think the lesson here is don't go demanding things in Judge Bean's saloon slash courtroom. That and make sure you bring exact change. In another case, a young rancher was fined $5 by the judge for fighting. The man produced witnesses to say that, in fact, he had been defending himself. So the judge, being fair-minded, reversed the fine. The other guy who the rancher was defending himself against was fined instead. Only problem was that man had already skipped town. And Judge Bean wasn't just going to not get paid. So he told the young rancher he'd have to hold him in custody until either the other man returned or somebody else paid the fine. And the rancher just ended up paying the damn fine himself so he could get set free. And then there's the infamous case where Judge Roy Bean fined a dead man. Yes, a dead man. A railroad worker had fallen to his death, and since Bean was also the coroner, he was the one that showed up to declare the death accidental. Upon inspection of the dead man's body, a pistol was found along with $40, prompting the judge to find the corpse $40 for carrying a concealed weapon. Lest you start thinking that Bean was totally corrupt, I will add that the $40 didn't end up in his pocket. It went towards burying the dearly departed railroad worker. And let's not forget the time that Roy Bean almost caused the stock market to collapse. Mm-hmm. He learned from a telegraph operator that Jay Gold was passing through on a special train headed east. And Jay Gold, or Gould, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it, was one of the wealthiest men alive during this time. A robber baron of the Gilded Age, and who's widely regarded then and now, as not exactly being the nicest person to ever walk the earth. Just the kind of guy that Roy Bean wanted to meet. The judge flagged down the train with a bandana, doffed his sombrero, and introduced himself to Gold as the law west of the Pecos, inviting the railroad tycoon to his saloon for a drink an invitation that Gould accepted. When the special train didn't show up at its destination at the predetermined time, all hell broke loose. Gould was reported as being killed in a train wreck and the stock market went wild. All because Judge Roy Bean wanted to buy the man a drink. But there in Langtree, life just sort of went on as normal. I feel like it's important also to point out that the judge didn't spend all of his time punishing lawbreakers. Part of his job as Justice of the Peace was joining couples together in holy matrimony. After officiating weddings, he always concluded the ceremony with the phrase, and may God have mercy on your souls. He wasn't legally allowed to grant divorces, but this was a rule that he utterly and completely ignored, at least when it came to couples whose marriages that he officiated. According to him, granting a divorce was just his way of rectifying the mistake that he made by joining the couple together in the first place. I briefly touched on the judge's penchant for charity earlier. In the 1960s, author Jack Skiles interviewed a longtime Langtree, Texas citizen named Beulah Farley, who actually knew Bean back in the old days. She had this to say about the judge's character. Quote, Roy Bean was a smart old booger. He had his faults, but listen, he was a good man at heart. He might have been a murderer and a robber and a thief, but he was good in his way. He was the best-hearted old fellow you ever saw. 
he would do anything for anybody. End quote. Believe it or not, the judge was known in Langtree as being kind and generous to widows and needy children, as well as using the fines he collected in court to buy medicine for the sick. Even back in San Antonio when he stole cattle, he was said to have distributed the meat to the impoverished of Beantown. He was quoted as saying, No use for poor people to starve while rich people have fat cows running on Beantown pastures. This was partially due to having a soft spot. I mean, I guess even some of the hardest of hard cases got a soft spot. But he also might have suffered from a guilty conscience as well as a belief in the afterlife. Once when he was asked why he helped so many people, he said, Well, I ain't been an angel myself, and there might be a lot charged on me come judgment day. I figure what good I can do, the Lord will give me credit when the time comes. By the way, since we're talking about Bean's good qualities, I'd like to point out that unlike a lot of the Old West guys, I didn't find any evidence that Roy Bean ran women out of his saloons. I don't know what went on in the saloons he helped run in California or New Mexico, but zero mentions of prostitution going on at the Jersey Lily. Which is kind of ironic, seeing as how Judge Bean isn't exactly known as being a paradigm of righteousness. Unlike Wyatt Earp, who actually was arrested for pimping out women. But that's none of my business. Over time, Judge Bean began to make a name for himself, and the Jersey Lily became a popular stopping off point for Easterners who wanted to see the old man. Not only could they have a drink or play a quick game of nine ball on the pool table I previously mentioned, but they could also pay a visit to the zoo that the judge kept out back. Yeah, you heard me right. Judge Roy Bean had his own personal zoo, which included wolves, coyotes, snakes, armadillos, a mountain lion, and the main attraction, a big black bear named Bruno. Legend has it that Judge Bean would, at times, chain disorderly drunks just outside of Bruno the bear's reach. Not close enough so the bear could hurt them, but close enough to make them rethink their criminal ways. The judge would also give Bruno beer to drink. Or more accurately, the patrons of the bar would give Bruno beer to drink, upon the judge's urgings. He'd bet train passengers that they couldn't outdrink Bruno. The catch was, the passengers had to not only pay for their beer, but Bruno's beer as well. Supposedly, the bear never lost any of these drinking games, and Judge Roy lined his pockets with the gullible customer's money. Earlier, I shared that story about how the judge refused to make change for a customer. He did this quite a bit, but not always the same way. Sometimes, he'd take so long making the change that the train would start taking off, forcing the passenger either to forget the change altogether so he could go hop on the train, or miss the train, thus forcing them to spend the night in Langtree, where they'd have no choice but to rent a room from, you guessed it, Judge Bean. When the shoe was on the other foot and some sneaky train passenger tried to skip town without paying his tab, Judge Roy would have the train stopped and he'd personally board it, guns drawn, until he found the culprit, demanding not only his money, but also an added collection fee. He never shot anybody while doing this, and according to sources, his pistols weren't even loaded. Matter of fact, Judge Roy Bean never even hung anybody in his capacity as Justice of the Peace. And this was new to me. I always thought that Roy made a reputation by being no-nonsense and stringing up criminals. Turns out I was wrong, but I'm not the only one. A quick search on Google will result in more than one erroneous article claiming that he was execution happy. And not sure what the source here is, but I'm thinking it's likely that he gets mixed up a lot with Judge Parker, the hanging judge out of Fort Smith, Arkansas. Did Judge Bean ever sentence somebody to hang? Yes, many times. But did anyone actually get hanged? Not that I'm aware of. Turns out Judge Bean was a fan of the scared straight tactic and found mock executions highly entertaining. There's an article on TrueWestMagazine.com written by Marshall Trimble highlighting such an incident. Long story short, there was a hobo that got arrested after stealing a railroad official's pistol. He was brought before Judge Bean and ended up cursing the good judge up and down, resulting in Roy sentencing the man to death by hanging. Weren't no trees in Langtree tall enough to hang a man from, so they hauled his ass up against a railroad boxcar and put a noose around his neck, tossing the other end of the rope over the top of said boxcar. 
At this point, the thief came to see the light of the Lord and began to repent of his transgressions. But Judge Roy wouldn't have none of it. Too late, he told the man. Meanwhile, the one guy that made up the jury whispered to the condemned, Hey, look, man, when we ain't looking, slip this noose off your neck and run like hell and don't never come back here no more. At that moment, Judge Bean and the others solemnly raised their faces to the sky and closed their eyes in prayer. The thief slid the noose off his neck and was last seen running out of town as fast as his feet could take him. The judge and company then retired back to the Jersey Lily for another round of drinks. And I will put a link in this episode's description if you're interested in reading that full article. I doubt this was the only time that Roy pulled off such a stunt. And I'm sure those who escaped the wrath of Judge Bean spread the news far and wide, and this helped solidify his reputation as a hangman. The newspapers didn't help matters either. Much like today, so-called journalists aren't shy about spinning the truth to entertain their readers. And as time grew, Judge Bean started becoming a famous man east of the Pecos as well. And far be it for him to dispel any of the myths about himself. He loved the limelight and all the attention that the stories brought. And, of course, all the customers that the stories brought. After a while, the area where Langtree was located became organized into Valverde County, and they made the town of Del Rio, which was about 70 miles away, the county seat. By this time, we're talking about the year 1885 now. Del Rio had more of a formal court system, so the need for Judge Bean's unconventional ways to dispense injustice was quickly diminishing. Luckily for Roy, he did still have the support of local ranchers, whom he had deputized. This allowed them to make arrests on the outlaws and rustlers who preyed upon their operations, and they knew that the judge would deal out justice much quicker than the real courts over there in Del Rio. They also knew they didn't have to deal with lawyers in Judge Bean's jurisdiction. If there's one thing that Judge Roy Bean hated worse than angry Irish mobs gallivating around in leprechaun hats, it was lawyers. Once, on one of the rare occasions that a lawyer was actually allowed inside the Jersey Lily, the attorney insisted on a habeas corpus hearing to determine whether or not the charges against his client were legitimate, an action which prompted Judge Bean to immediately charge a fine to the lawyer for using foul language in his court. By 1887, the judge decided to get himself involved in a little boxing match between heavyweight champion of the world, Gentleman Jim Corbett, and his challenger, a scrappy Irishman named Bob Fitzsimmons. The fight, dubbed as a fistic carnival, was originally supposed to be held in Dallas. They even built a special arena for the occasion that could seat 20,000 spectators. But just days before the fight, he got called off, thanks to some holier-than-thou preachers and do-gooder 19th century Karen types who pressured the Texas state legislature into passing a law banning boxing matches statewide. The things that offend people and the things that people want to make or keep illegal never cease to amaze me. Some things never change, man. You gotta love Texas. Such a great state with a rich history and amazing people, and also ridiculously stupid outdated laws. Legislative morality that make Harper Valley hypocrites feel better about their own shortcomings. Do not get me started. Due to the fight getting canceled and for various other reasons, the champ Jim Corbett retired, leaving room for another boxer named Peter Mayer to step in. If he and Fitzsimmons fought, the winner would take the title as the new world champion pugilist. Around this same time, the mayor of El Paso came up with a clever little loophole and announced that the fight could take place across the river in Mexico or even in New Mexico, which caused another self-righteous condition fit amongst God's holiest of children. A New Mexico congressman pushed through legislation banning boxing in the entirety of the United States, and the governor of Chihuahua, Mexico, said that he would not allow the fight to happen in his territory either. Bunch of party poopers. And then, just when it looked like the fight wasn't going to happen at all, our very own Judge Roy Bean waded into the midst of this sanctimonious quagmire, offering up a solution. His plan was to have the fight take place on a sandbar in the middle of the Rio Grande River, not too far from Linktree, and on the Mexican side of the river. The catch was, it was on the Coahuila side of the Rio Grande, not the Chihuahua side, like what was planned in El Paso. Unlike the state of Chihuahua, the governor of Coahuila never thought to ban boxing. 
And lest some priggish plaster saint try to put a stop to that idea too, the plans were made in secret. Fight fans were told to gather at a train station in San Antonio where they could purchase tickets for the fight at $20 a pop. Another $12 for the train ride and then get whisked on down to Langtree where Judge Bean was busy making preparations. And make no mistake about it, he weren't doing this because he believed the laws against boxing were unjust or even because he was a big fight fan. Nah, he smelled money. And if the fight were near Langtree, all those fight fans would show up with a big thirst on. And who better to make a profit out of selling libations to the thirsty masses than Justice of the Peace Roy Bean? There's a lot more to this fight. I could probably do an episode just on it alone. But just to keep things brief, the fight went off without a hitch. Fitzsimmons defeated Mayer in just 96 seconds. The spectators drank Judge Bean's liquor well into the night, resulting in the Jersey Lily's biggest payday ever, and nobody got their feelings hurt. In 1898, the world was a-changing. Spain declared war on the United States, and Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders charged up San Juan Hill. It was the year the cornflakes were invented. The year Hawaii was annexed and Pepsi-Cola came into existence. So did the Goodyear Tire Company. A machine gun was used in battle for the first time, and the first cheerleaders ever cheered on a football game. Spoiler alert, they were all dudes. Physicist Marie Curry discovered radium, and amongst all this change, the Honorable Judge Roy Bean was informed that a special election for an actual real justice of the peace would be held. To which he replied, if I wanted an election, I would have ordered one. Whoa, easy there, Judge Roy. You're not a young man anymore. You know how you get all gassy when you get your zapples riled up? And because Bean was a stubborn old coot and didn't want any damn election in the first place, he effectively just took his ball and went home. Refused to do any sort of campaigning whatsoever. Mm-mm, no sir. So, of course, he lost the election. And then he did something that totally under no circumstances would ever happen nowadays. When he lost the election, he refused to step down from his position. And believe it or not, he fucking got his way. There was a citizen's petition that called for a new election, and Bean won the Office of Justice of the Peace back. He also ended up getting re-elected two years later in 1900, and again two years after that in 1902. Matter of fact, he died while still serving as Justice of the Peace in March of 1903. And Roy's death, much like his early life, is kind of shrouded in mystery. Some accounts state that he died of heart and lung ailments. Other accounts say that he died after a heavy drinking binge or that he fell ill after a trip to San Antonio. I'm not sure which one of these versions is the truth, but probably it was a combination of all of the above. You know, maybe he was already in bad health and a trip to San Antonio coupled with a several-day drunk just kind of did him in. Either way, it's said that he died peacefully in his sleep there in the Jersey Lily on March 16, 1903. The Jersey Lily still stands to this day, by the way. You can not only visit it, but you can step inside and stand at the very bar where the judge doled out justice. I hope to make it over there one of these days myself. A year after Judge Roy's death, the town of Langtree received a special visitor, one that I'm sure had Roy spinning in his grave. The great lady herself, Miss Lily Langtry, stepped off a train en route to Los Angeles to pay the town a visit. She was regaled with stories of the judge told to her by starstruck locals about how he dispensed justice and just how he admired her so. The mayor of Langtry even gifted her one of Bean's revolvers. I think Roy would have liked that. Years later, when Lily wrote her autobiography, she said at the stop in Langtry, quote, It was a short visit, but an unforgettable one. Unforgettable. Just like Judge Roy Bean. His life wasn't an example of courage like a lot of other Texas legends. Men like Davy Crockett or Jim Bowie or Travis. But I think Judge Bean's a little bit more relatable. He sure as hell had his flaws, just like we all do. As one writer put it back in 1933, nobody has been able to fill Judge Roy's shoes after his death. And maybe nobody wants to. And that's about all I've got on Judge Roy Bean. As always, thank you all for listening. If you're interested in hearing more true tales from the Wild West, check out bloodybeaver.com for more episodes. 
And if you like what you hear, do me a favor and spread the word. Tell a friend about Bloody Beaver Podcast. And I'm not asking. I'm telling you. You better tell a friend. Because if you don't, then one night I'm going to come to you inside of your house, to wherever you're sleeping, and I'm going to cut your throat. And then I'm going to burn your house to the ground. What? No. Oh, JK, just playing. Nobody's going to get their throats cut. Oh, I almost forgot. I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode about the mystery surrounding Roy's actual year of birth. I didn't want to waste a lot of time on it, but Roy once claimed, and his tombstone still claims, that he was born in 1825. According to official census records that I saw, it was closer to like 1834, which would have made him just about 12 years old when he was supposed to be in New Orleans, or 13 when he killed that man in Mexico. The 1850 census lists Roy as being born in 1831, which would have made a little bit more sense. And you know, if he was that young, I really don't see him spending much time in New Orleans or being off trading in Mexico, which means those stories might just be made up. Feel free to email me at bloodybeaverpodcast at gmail.com or head on over to that aforementioned bloodybeaver.com and hit the contact button at the top of the screen. Or better yet, there's a new feature on the website where you can actually leave me a voice message if you want. There's an icon on the far right of the screen that says, leave a voice message. Hit that bad boy and start talking. Hope you all have an amazing week. Hopefully, if nothing else, we can all learn a little something from Roy Bean's charitable nature and help out those among us who are less fortunate. And at the same time, keep in mind that not everything is a hanging offense. Relax, take a deep breath, slow down, and maybe start building up some credit in heaven like Roy did. All right, y'all, that's it for this episode. Adios. Court's adjourned.